This is WSFI Spotlight, a conversation with Catholics living in the light. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of WSFI Spotlight. I'm your host, Angela Tomlinson. With me in the studio is Bonnie Quirk and Ann Oakley. Our guest this hour is Dr. Elizabeth Ann Vliet. Dr. Vliet has been a leader in patient-centered, individualized medical care. Since 1986, she's practiced medicine independent of insurance contracts that interfere with the patient-physician relationships. She's an independent doctor. She has no financial ties uh, whatsoever, so she can speak her mind. She is the recipient of the 2014 Ellis Island Medal of Honor. She is an author of many books, too many for me to mention. She's been seen and heard on Fox News, Cavuto, Stuart Varney Show, Fox and Friends, Sean Hannity, and many nationally syndicated radio shows. So, Doctor, welcome to WSFI Catholic Radio, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you, Angela, and thank you. It's great to be with you. So, Doctor, you're a past director, and you're still quite active in the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Tell us a little bit, first of all, about that organization. That organization has been a voice for physicians and patients since 1943, and their emphasis is on patient-physician relationship and individualized free market approaches to health care, trying to avoid all of the third-party interference with government bureaucrats and regulations that interfere with doctors and patients making medical decisions, and also with insurance companies that interfere with patients getting the treatment they need. They, they were one of the leading groups that sued against the government control of health care and our life and liberty with when the new health care law went into effect in 2010 and have been leading the way with preservation of patient rights and physicians ability to deliver medical care tailored to the patient and I'm looking that the I'm looking at your website right now it says that your motto is all for the patient yes. all for the patient yes. So, jumping right into the matter at hand, um, it's surprising that sometimes there is a conflict, isn't there, between what, who your customer is, is it the patient or is it the government? Well, it's very clear when uh, physicians have signed contracts with insurance carriers and when patients have signed contracts with insurance carriers that are paying for the care, mm -hmm. that the decision is affected by what the insurance company will pay for which is a different agenda from what the patient may need. So that's very relevant today with regard to the COVID-19 situation where we have political figures with the, an FDA bureaucrat who unilaterally issued the restriction of hydroxychloroquine to hospitalized patients for the emergency approval that was issued on March 28th and where we have governors then stepping in and overriding the FDA legal authority for doctors to prescribe off-label any medicine that's been approved. So, for example, hydroxychloroquine was approved in 1955 for malaria, later approved for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. It's been used, it was used initially in the treatment of HIV and it was studied in the SARS COVID-1 outbreak in 2002-2003 and found to be a very effective antiviral. So it's been used around the world since 1955, was already FDA approved. Doctors could normally legally prescribe that medicine off-label in COVID-19 based upon the cell culture studies in 2005 and based upon the it were done at our NIH and showed that hydroxychloroquine was a potent antiviral medicine. It actually, Angela, works much like the lock on your door to your home prevents burglars and alarm systems on your home prevent burglars. Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine 
block the virus from attaching to the receptor sites on the cell surface. So block that first step. Then it also increases the zinc transport across the membrane, and together the two medicines, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, plus zinc, stop the virus from using our body cells to multiply and overload the body with the virus. So they are two very early steps that hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine block very potently. And that was shown in studies at the CDC and NIH and published in 2005. So Dr. Fauci and the other people at the NIH and CDC knew about those studies. I don't know why they are not talking about the positive antiviral effects in the SARS-CoV-1 since this is SARS-CoV-2 that we now are dealing with, and it's a very similar virus. Well, China found that, remembered those old studies, their doctors remembered them, started using them. They were looking at all kinds of medicines that were antiviral, trying to find something that worked, and they found in back in December 2019 that hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine really worked most effectively in the early stages to help block the spread and the severity of the illness and reduce hospitalizations and death. China then shared that information with their doctors, met with the doctors from South Korea, and and South Korea very quickly by January was already on board using hydroxychloroquine. That spread to Turkey and Iran and India, all of whom followed China's lead in starting to use hydroxychloroquine early, and they were all showing incredibly good results. That was the data coming in from overseas, and then we had France and Israel, Australia, Canada, and Brazil, Costa Rica, and others. And so that was the data that President Trump was referring to in February when he said, we have an older FDA-approved drug that offers hope. Well, as soon as he mentioned that, he wasn't hooting it or promoting it or calling it a panacea as media has later accused him of doing, he was simply saying that other countries were seeing that it showed hope, and our own study years ago showed that it worked against this type of virus. And as soon as that happened, we started seeing governors jumping in and restricting the use of it in their states. We started having medical boards threatening doctors about prescribing it and threatening investigations. I've been on conference calls with doctors from overseas who are using it widely with good results, safe results, and keeping people from dying. And then we have the United States. I've been on conference calls with doctors across the U.S. who are being threatened by medical boards. In fact, our organization is in the process of working on lawsuits against three governors for restricting doctors' legal authority to prescribe it for outpatients off-label. Right, I'm so just looking, uh, doctor, at this. I'm just looking at, um, at the contrast. So you're saying that in these other countries, looking at this table, India, Costa Rica, Australia, South Korea, Brazil, and Israel, just a few, you have a little table where you talk about they're administering this drug early and they're administering it as a prophylactic, much like President Trump's doing. Maybe you want to just walk yeah. us through the effectiveness of those numbers versus in the United States where they're requiring that it only be given late and that you have to be in the hospital. Well, this is what is so striking and it is so frightening that there is an orchestrated attack by the media. And even, even Neil Cavuto yesterday was making this outrageously wrong statement saying it would kill you. That is not what the FDA data shows. I'll come back to that. But I want to I want to just com- quickly compare India. Thank you. Which four times the population of the United States. They have devastating poverty in their major cities. They don't have the medical infrastructure and number of hospital beds and ICU beds that we have in the United States. And India, normally you would have thought, would have had a huge problem with COVID-19. Their population density in their cities 
far outweighs anything we have. But India, as of May 18th, now this is an update from the article you have. Yes, mine's April as, 27th. April. So yours is May 18th, Doctor? All right, this is May 18th. Excellent. the world data chart that I refer to. Excellent. India had 101,261 cases in a population four times the size of the United States. The United States has a million five hundred and fifty thousand two hundred and ninety four cases and we have a quarter of the population India does and they only have a little over a hundred thousand cases now if you compare best way to do this is compare apples to apples with deaths per million population India is sitting at two deaths per million population because they are using it hydroxychloroquine prophylactic for their nurses and doctors and family members of someone who's sick and they're using it for early treatment the first week of symptoms the United States okay India two deaths per million the United States is sit with all of our sophisticated infrastructure and all of our ventilators and ICU beds the US is sitting at 278 deaths per million because we are only allowed under the FDA emergency use authorization to use it in hospitals and then the governor's restricting it even more. That is just outrageous in my view. Doctors across the country know that it works. They know that they are frustrated. I have heard so many doctors on the conference calls I've been part of personally that and I've heard others on on TV interviewed and they they know that it works well if it's given in the first week of symptoms Brazil showed that they could reduce their hospitalizations by two-thirds if they gave it in the first week Australia has four deaths per million compared to the United States at 278 and Australia has a socialized medicine system that generally doesn't people have long delays and they don't have the number of there are all kinds of with their system they are getting better results Argentina which really has a third world medical system and very very serious poverty problems across the country they only have eight deaths per million compared to the United States South Korea has five deaths per million this is staggering that as sophisticated as our medical system is as good as our ICU and critical care doctors are we just we don't get access to it across the board early enough to make the difference in saving lives and I was just on a conference call with a critical care doctor who is an anesthesiologist. He was from the Midwest. He had volunteered his time to go to the New York area to help in the crisis. And he said, I was in the ICU intubating patients, dealing with this crisis for 23 days straight. And at that point the patients were so sick from the cytokine storm and so much damage none of our medicines were working very well and our mortality rate was anywhere from 50 to 75 percent once patients were in the ICU on ventilators it's just incredible you know, you mentioned that the um, the government is stockpiling I'm thinking I don't know if that's your article that they're stockpiling hundreds of millions of doses of uh, hydroxychloroquine <laughs> Tell us a little that bit about that. President Trump led the way to ramp up production and donations from pharmaceutical companies so that we would have plenty of medicine in the national stockpile. And Senator Ron Johnson, the chairman of the Senate Oversight Committee on Government Affairs and Homeland Security, picked up the phone and called me in early April after hearing my interview in Milwaukee. And he said, what's going on? We have gotten the production, we've gotten the donations, we have the medicine sitting there, and it's not being dispensed. So that's when I told him what had been done with the FDA's emergency use authorization and then the governor's restrictions. 
and the medical boards threatening doctors. And I said, we're, we're having doctors that are, their hands are tied without patient prescriptions. And he, Senator Johnson said, well, that was not the intent. The intent was that the national directive would make it available for pharmacies and outpatients and doctors and hospitals and nursing homes. So, Doctor, I just have to ask, why, why, why do you think, uh, I, I think there are a myriad of reasons, but what's your gut feel that this restriction on hydroxychloroquine uh, is coming down? Well, my opinion is that there are several factors. I, I think there is political observation. Uh, obstruction clearly and i think that i mean it was the opposition to hydroxychloroquine was led by three democrat governors andrew cuomo in new york governor sislak in nevada and whitmer in michigan and that was done quickly after president trump said that it offered hope and it was as if suddenly an old safe drug used worldwide that the who that calls on their list an essential medicine because it's been safe, cheap, available, and widely used for many different diseases. I think there was political opposition in trying to do the opposite of what the president had suggested offered hope. There is clearly uh, monetary motivations that I wrote about in another editorial called A Tale of Two Drugs, Money Versus Medical Wisdom. And these are all up on my medical website, vivelifecenter.com, as well as the aapsonline.org. But in that one, we're seeing that Dr. Fauci and Rick Bright, the person at the FDA who blocked the widespread outpatient use with that restricted emergency use authorization, both of them have been promoting remdesivir, which is a totally experimental antiviral that had never been approved for anything by the FDA. It was tried in Ebola, and it was developed with taxpayer money and in partnership with the pharmaceutical company, but it didn't work very well against Ebola, and so it was kind of put on the back burner. And then when COVID-19 came out, they tried it again. It, it has only given modest benefits, shortening the hospital stay four days, and no change in death rate, unlike hydroxychloroquine, which has reduced the death rate in many countries. But also remdesivir had very high incidence of serious side effects. 23% of patients had liver damage illustrated by the elevated liver enzymes. 25% had serious side effects of multi-organ failure and septic shock and low blood pressure. And that was very serious. And Gilead's own press release said that there was a 6% acute respiratory failure in the five-day treatment group and a 10.7% acute respiratory failure in the 10-day treatment group. So they were admitting the serious side effects, and yet that release was made in a presidential briefing without peer review, and Dr. Fauci called it a game changer, and he said that remdesivir may become the standard of care. How can something be a standard of care when it's never been approved for the FDA by the FDA for anything until now? That suddenly, the next day, after taking two months to issue an emergency authorization for hydroxychloroquine that was already FDA approved for sixty-five years, they issued an emergency use authorization for remdesivir in one day without even having peer-reviewed medical data. And this is really, you've got to look at the fact that both NIH stands to bring in money from remdesivir's success, so does the pharmaceutical company, and nine of the panelists on the NIH panel of experts that were making treatment recommendations, the very people that recommended and said we shouldn't be using hydroxychloroquine, we should be using remdesivir, nine of the group had research support, financial consultantship, and advisory board positions with the pharmaceutical company that made remdesivir. 
So there was an obvious conflict of interest there. And medically, ethically, I think they should have recused themselves from making the recommendations when they had an obvious conflict of interest. But they didn't. So we've got that issue. And then you've got the whole red versus blue states issue of the blue states seem to want to keep everybody locked down as long as possible and do as much damage as possible while the red states are trying to get reopened and yet all of the states could benefit if doctors if we get back to the basics the focus on life which is god's gift not the government's get back to the focus on preservation of life letting doctors work with their patients to make the medical decisions under the normal fda regulations We can prescribe off-label for a new use if we think it's safe for the patient and appropriate for the patient and the patient wants to try it. We need to get back to those basics. But right now, we're not allowed to do that without threat of disciplinary action by the medical boards. There are only four states in the United States that did not restrict hydroxychloroquine. Florida... North Dakota, um, I think there were there were two others, and I'm blanking on the other two right at the moment. But there were only four that did not restrict it at all and let doctors make the decision. Hmm. Sounds like uh, the government is trying to take over medicine totally, doesn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. It does. I think, it is very right. alarming. This is. Very bad precedent for one drug to be under orchestrated attack by the media, presenting false information and skewing what they are presenting by presenting only flawed studies of critically ill patients and not presenting any of the information about the difference in success rate if it's used early. This this is really a dangerous and unprecedented damage to the physician-patient relationship and people's lives. Mm. You know, I have a daughter-in-law who has rheumatoid arthritis, and one of the drugs she takes is hydroxychloroquine. And she's never, never had a problem, absolutely never. And when all of this came up, I said to her, have you, has any doctor ever told you there were cardiac problems? And she said, heavens no. She said, it's like a miracle for me. I stay on it. I've had no problems, and it helps my condition. And she said, I never even get an EKG when I go to my rheumatologist. Uh, well, so, this is what is so staggering to me. The rheumatology guidelines don't require a baseline EKG because over years of use with millions of patients, they've found it so safe. And here's what else is interesting. You've heard all of this incredible fear-mongering. I mean, even Neil Cavuto said it yesterday. That was outrageous, in my opinion. I mean, I'm a physician, and he's not, and I've read the medical studies, and I treat patients, and I have patients with rheumatoid and lupus and people who go to Africa and need it for malaria who've taken this medicine. I know the safety data. And the FDA has 62 reported cases of cardiac death over 65 years and 50 million prescriptions. That's a one in a million chance of something serious happening to the heart as a result of this medicine. And unlike lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, where hydroxychloroquine is prescribed for decades at higher doses, the treatment course for COVID-19 is five to seven days typically and at 400 milligrams a day. The prophylactic dose used in India and a whole lot of other countries is 400 milligrams once a week. So the doses we're using in COVID-19 successfully around the world, and some doctors in the U.S. that can get it for their patients, are using successfully. We're using lower doses for a very short, I mean, it's a week. 
And if you're doing it under a doctor's care, you're going to be monitored. And if you need an EKG before you start it, your doctor's going to order that for you. Doctor, I have a question for you. I have a hypothetical question for you. Yes. Okay. So if, for example, the death rate in the United States was closer to India or Australia, where you said India was two per million, Australia is four per million, Right. What about would we be would we be locked down? No, I don't think so because that that is doctors would then be able to make a decision to prescribe it prophylactically for people on the front lines like they do in India. All of the healthcare workers in India are getting the once a week dose. All of the family members and contacts of people who got sick are getting the prophylactic dose. Then as soon as somebody develops symptoms, they go to the treatment dose for a week, usually with hydroxychloroquine, maybe with azithromycin and zinc added to it, and vitamin C. But this is something we could be doing. Doctors in nursing homes that have been able to get it for their nursing home patients have done that and saved lives. One doctor in Texas was able to get it, and out of the 80 patients in that nursing home, there was only one death. New York State that restricted it and mandated that the exposed people put back in the nursing home and then exposed others. New York, the other as of last week, had 5,500 deaths in nursing homes alone. You know, here I mean, it is it's outrageous just, what it has is. been done to patients across the country with these restrictions. I'm just thinking here locally, close to home in, in um, Illinois, in Lake County, we get a death report every day and in a disease, you know, how many people have been infected. Consistently, mm-hmm. since it came out, two-thirds of the patients that die, that the people who contract and die, are in long-term care facilities for seniors. So Exactly right. Yeah, and yet we're hearing now we're going to go through contact tracing. Contact tracing. You have 60 people who have died in Lake County who haven't been locked down in a nursing home. 60 people out of the whole population. We're gonna go through contact tracing. We are in a lockdown state in Illinois. And you just makes you wonder, it makes you wonder if for 60 people in the whole county that have died from this, if those people had had this earlier, what would that number look like? It does not make medical sense that the entire population is locked down for that number of deaths and it does not make sense that early use is restricted and doctors can't make the decision themselves with their patients. Fundamentally, that's a civil liberty, and I wish that if there are civil liberty attorneys listening to this program, I wish they would contact me and let me get them the data and see what they could do on the legal front, because there's only so much that we as physicians can do when we have threats of losing our license because of this overreach and draconian restriction by political figures with governors and medical boards. Well, it sounds like they're practicing medicine without a license. What do you think? Well, in effect, they are, and they're overriding. I don't know how, from a legal standpoint, how the state governors are being allowed to override the normal FDA regulations that allow doctors to prescribe off-label any FDA-approved medicine. I don't know how that is happening legally and how they're getting away with it. But I'm not an attorney. We need attorneys who would be aggressive in pursuing this because people's lives are at stake. Yes, I, I wonder if uh, if we had put a lot of our nursing home patients on prophylactic hydroxychloroquine, if we would have cut that death rate way down, way down when the I pandemic was I don't question that we would have been able to markedly reduce the death rate because the nursing homes where in states where doctors were allowed to use it early and prophylactically. For example, that Texas um, nursing home that I mentioned, when, when 
they had patients testing positive, the doctor was forward thinking enough to get everyone on it. And literally out of the 80 cases, there was only one death. That's much better success than any other state has reported when they didn't use it early. Seattle, the Washington state nursing homes, my understanding is that they got control of their nursing home outbreaks by using hydroxychloroquine early, and so did Florida. That's one of the reasons that Florida was very proactive in protecting their nursing home patients, but uh, but Florida did not restrict access to hydroxychloroquine either. So you have several ways that the Florida nursing home situation was much better handled than especially New York, because New York nursing home patients got a double whammy. Andrew Cuomo issued the most restrictive order in the country for hydroxychloroquine. He restricted it to hospitalized patients on a clinical trial. And not every hospital in the midst of an emergency has the staff and resources and the time to ramp up a clinical trial and get it approved and implemented and all of that. Bonnie, you've worked in hospital ICUs. You know that under the gun like that, you don't have time to figure out a clinical trial and go through the approval process. Right. So many hospitals didn't have any clinical trials going, and Cuomo restricted it to both of those criteria had to be met. And that meant that the nursing home doctors couldn't prescribe it for nursing home patients because they were outpatients, not hospitalized patients, and they weren't on a clinical trial. And then on March 25th, Cuomo issued the mandate that nursing homes had to accept their COVID-19 patients back instead of sending them to the U.S. Naval Hospital ship, which was sitting right there in New York Harbor and practically empty. It could have, it was prepared to treat COVID-19 and the nursing homes were not. You know, all of this sounds like a horror story coming out of a, a book uh, that you, in this day and age of, of our techn- technology and healthcare and our knowledge and our good doctors uh, are, are like, it's like a horror story. That, the, it that it, you would look back and say, this couldn't happen in America. We, we are supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. Uh, how could this happen? And yet, I think it's happened in increments. And, uh, and I think there's a, a, a control of doctors by the government is one of the last steps in controlling the nation. We've already got health care. Uh, and they would like not to have any doctors who differ from their set standards. And I saw that every day in the unit as it progressed. But what are your thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely right on that. And Ronald Reagan and others before him talked about socialized medicine is the key to controlling the population. If you control people's access to medical care, you control their lives. And I have fought against that for years. I've actually, both my husband and I were patients in socialized medicine hospitals. He nearly died in Germany. Had I not been a physician, he would have died because of their socialized medicine system and their devastating hospital condition. And that was in 2017, but I was in a, hosp- in a socialized medicine hospital in England earlier um, thinking I had appendicitis, acute appendicitis. It was the most ghastly experience of my life, and I hope and pray I never have to deal with that again. I've toured the hospitals in <clears throat> most, across, most of the countries across Europe, <clears throat> and in other countries with socialized medicine, and they are nothing like what we're used to in America. So if that happens, people will have much more control over their lives 
and rationed care like all of these other countries are experiencing. That's one of the reasons Italy's death rate was so high. They just didn't have, uh, people had long waits, care was rationed, they didn't have the medical facilities, they didn't have the ventilators, they weren't using hydroxychloroquine, they didn't shut down flights from China. I mean, it was just a perfect storm disaster. Well, this is our foray into socialized medicine, isn't it? Where you have politicians and government officials that are, are sort of stacking the deck in favor of an unproven drug for financial gain and for political well, gain at the it is, And it's also control of people, and it facilitates us. It facilitates the governors keeping the lockdown going longer because they keep saying, oh, well, we don't have any treatment, so we have to keep you locked down. And that's just totally wrong. When we're looking at all of these other countries, and many of them, third world countries, I mean, Algeria has better results than we do. And as I said, Turkey and Brazil and Argentina and South Korea, Costa Rica, India, all of these countries that have more poverty than we do and less available hospital beds and ICU beds and ventilators, all of them have bettered success in COVID-19 than we do and lower death rates by far. And it looked like from those New York numbers that Cuomo put up a while ago that, you know, if you had 66% of the people who were locked down that got the virus and 18% of the nursing homes who are locked down, you add those two numbers together, it's dangerous to be locked down. It looks like it's a lot more dangerous to be locked down than it is to be going free. I mean, look at those numbers. That point, you're right. Well, you'll get no immunity if you're locked down. You'll get no natural immunity. We've got to get people out and about and with minimal exposure so they develop the herd immunity. We already know that there are way more people from the testing that's been done. We know there are way more people who were exposed and had mild illness than we ever thought. And the Stanford studies showed that. And although the left has been trying to discredit those studies as well, and we we know that it's more widespread. So if people were out and about and doing the sensible, sensible things like, and which we should be doing for the flu anyway, and people were careless about it, but if you're hand washing and social distancing and being careful and staying home if you're sick, all of those things, plus having access to treatment, you know, patients who've been treated for the flu know that Tamiflu works only within the first 48 hours. Any viral illness is working better if treatment is started early. Herpes outbreaks, same thing. And so the same is true with COVID-19. You've got to get the treatment early, stay home, do the things that will prevent spread, use the medicine that's been shown to prevent spread, and get people through it and keep them out of the hospital. It's just common sense, and the studies are there to show that it works. They are being willfully ignored and devalued and dismissed. Right, they're called anecdotal. They're called, they're, uh, they tout the side effects of it, which I was looking at your side effects of it, I was really kind of shocked at how it was a diarrhea and, na- and nausea versus the organ damage of the Rendisavir study and uh, the fatality rate. Yeah, it was shocking to me. But let my me. Quote was not just my opinion. I was quoting the CDC website yes. that lists the side effects for use in malaria, which is a longer term, higher dose, and they list the side effects as mild. Right. CDC website under the malaria fact sheet didn't even mention cardiac arrhythmia as a side effect. They mentioned nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and they mentioned that with more than five years of use, it was a rare side effect of damage to the retina, which is why they recommend if you're on it for more than five years that you have your eyes checked. Well, people would be doing that, but we're not taking it for five years for COVID. We're taking it for five days. Right. Before we close, because we only have uh, 10 minutes left in the show, do you have any thoughts about the vaccine? Well, I'm very concerned about a vaccine being rushed to market. When you rush anything to market like that at warp speed, let's say, um, 
which is kind of the buzzword right now, you don't have adequate time to evaluate the safety and side effects. And we saw that with the H1N1 situation, the swine flu, the the vaccine was rushed to market and we ended up having people dying with um, Guillain-Barre and other serious side effects and deaths when that vaccine was rushed to market. And what's interesting is it's much more complicated to develop a vaccine for an RNA virus, which is the COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-1. We still don't have a vaccine for the SARS-CoV-1 that came out in 2002. I mean, it kind of went away on its own, which is why hydroxychloroquine was shelved at that point as an antiviral because the the serious virus they were using it for in in the studies um, just kind of went away. And so it, it was put on the back burner. But in SARS and MERS and others like that, and even HIV, we still don't have a vaccine for those. So I'm very concerned that this is the focus is on vaccines which have potentially greater risk, especially if they're rushed to market without adequate safety data. We've had 65 years of safety data on hydroxychloroquine and more than 70 years with chloroquine. Chloroquine was approved in 1934 and has been used worldwide. And then hydroxychloroquine, which is a safer derivative, was approved in 1955. I want to re-emphasize that. Mm -hmm. We've got years and years and years of hundreds of millions of doses in patients around the world, all ages, all ethnic groups. CDC says it's safe for pregnant women and nursing mothers. It's safe for the elderly. It's safe for children. Yeah. I mean, I, I just have never in my career seen such an orchestrated attack on one drug with that much worldwide use and track record for safety. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned um, the the danger of the vaccine that's being rushed to market. Lot, yesterday we learned on an interview with Ron Panzer, he was saying that um, when something's being declared a pandemic or a national emergency, this that immediately lifts any liability for the vaccine companies. So they're now immune, from what I understand, to any implications yeah. of the danger, if they, if they rush it to market or if people die in the process or sick, from what I understood, because we've declared it um, a pandemic. Uh, they have, is that how well, you understand it, Dr. You know what's interesting, the same should apply to the off-label use of hydroxychloroquine, and yet they've issued all of the fear-mongering about that and and flagrantly misrepresented and exaggerated the risk of that and are not talking about the risk of the vaccines that we already saw happen with the swine flu H1N1. You know, Doctor, they're talking about a second wave of this virus way ahead of even getting out of the present uh, pandemic we're in, the second wave. Uh, It would seem to me that hydroxychloroquine should be used to prevent the second wave that everybody is locking everybody down or threatening that the schools won't open. It would seem to me that logically you might use hydroxychloroquine and prevent a second wave. Your thoughts? Well, that is certainly what I would like to do for my patients based on my intensive study of the basic science and the clinical outcome studies worldwide over the last three months. I literally have been digging into this in depth for the last, since since the beginning of February. And so February, March, April, and now May. And I'll tell you, there is nothing that I'm seeing in any of the scientific data that is as safe or effective as what I'm reading in the medical articles on hydroxychloroquine and the countries that are using it. So I think we could do a lot to help the safety of our food processing workers, our nurses and doctors, our nursing home patients, and the public if there is concern about a second wave. I mean, we we used Tamiflu 
for helping to prevent and treat early flu. So why wouldn't we use something that has demonstrated antiviral properties if we suspect that COVID-19 may be coming back in the flu season? Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't make sense that we would avoid making that option available to patients. And I keep coming back to the point that I'm definitely not saying everybody should take it, neither is any responsible physician that I've listened to. We are saying that doctors should make the decision for individual patients without politicians and career bureaucrats limiting our ability to evaluate the patient. We're frontline. We're on the firing lines trying to save lives. We're the ones that should be making the decision when we've got an FDA-approved drug that's cheap and available and a long track record of safety. That's the bottom line, in my opinion. It's interesting, Doctor. One of the things I remember when President Trump, they asked him if he had a financial interest in this. (laughs) Do you remember that? I mean, they are just determined to attack him on every possible thing they can think of. Instead of focusing on I mean, I listed in my new editorial that's coming out now, uh, was being released today and tomorrow, I listed a whole series of questions that the media should be asking. What are those questions, Doctor? Give us a preview. the drug. And they're not doing it. Give us a few of your questions. Oh, the questions that the media should be asking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one person by his own admission, blocked the directives from his superiors, including the President of the United States, to expand availability of hydroxychloroquine for outpatients and nursing home patients in the U.S. Reporters should be investigating that question. Why does one person get to decide for 330 million people across the country? What's the cost in lives and economic damage that have resulted from one person's decision to restrict physicians' independent medical decision-making. How many nursing homes deaths could have been prevented if physicians had been allowed early access to hydroxychloroquine? Why are U.S. doctors and nurses prevented from using hydroxychloroquine prophylactically when workers in China, South Korea, India, Brazil, Argentina, Israel, Australia, Turkey, France, and other countries can be protected? so they can treat people without risking their lives. Why does the U.S. with a much higher, much more sophisticated medical infrastructure have a much higher mortality rate than poor countries? Those are just some of the questions that should be asked. And how about asking the question, does anyone on that panel have a financial interest? Well, we know they do. It's on the NIH website, and the reporters could find that if they'd bother to look it up. I found it. Well, we asked that question. Well, part part of the problem is journalism has has become almost extinct, and uh, reporters do not, uh, they follow a company line, depending on what company that employs them, uh, and they don't do investigated reporting anymore. That's the problem. I think you're exactly right. Citizens are becoming the investigative reporters. We are the media. That's why I'm doing volunteering my time to do this work, writing these editorials and doing the research nights and weekends and whenever I can, aside from seeing patients. I, I mean... I have to, because we're not getting the information from the people who should be doing the job of reporting on these issues. And, of course, the badge of honor, Doctor, will be when you get blocked from uh, YouTube. That will be the ultimate (laughs) sign that you're hitting home, you're getting close to the mark. (laughs) I I did a video hour-long program for the grassroots group Open Texas last Friday, and they have posted it on the Open Texas YouTube channel and the Open Texas Facebook group, and I'm I'm waiting to see whether that's going to be taken down, because YouTube is censoring Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, 
Instagram, all of them are censoring any of the medical information that they think doesn't fit with the World Health Organization or Dr. Fauci or the um, war on hydroxychloroquine group. It's, it's truly, this is unprecedented in the United States of America, and it reminds me of our experiences when my husband took educational tour groups into the Soviet Union and Red China and Iron Curtain countries of Europe in the 70s. We are, we are experiencing the totalitarian censorship and lockdowns that they lived with day in and day out. I think you're exactly right, and I think that's exactly what they want. So what can we yep. do, Doctor? We're down to our last two minutes in the show. Give us some advice and also how people can learn more about your work. Well, I would really encourage your listeners to pray. We need God's strength and supernatural power to overcome the evil assault on life, which is happening with the elderly and all of us with these restrictions on the medicine as well as in the whole abortion movement we need to have everybody listening contact President Trump and thank him for his efforts to try and make these medicines available and we need pressure on the state governors and legislators both state and federal people need to be writing and need to be active and need to be calling and they need to be getting these editorials that you saw out to their social media networks so that we can educate more people about the very serious threat to our lives, our livelihoods, our freedom of speech, our freedom of worship. All of these freedoms are under massive attack and people are going to have to defend it or it's gone. Amen. Amen. And where do they go for additional information about your writings? Well, my interviews and editorials are on my website under the coronavirus button update. It is vive, lifecenter.com. And we also have them posted on the aapsonline.org website. And YouTube has a lot of the videos that have been done, particularly Open Texas, is a really good group. We should get a grassroots going in your area with Illinois. We open do, Illinois. We do, open Doctor. Texas. We have an Open Illinois. I was in Springfield uh, on Saturday, and they are Great. doing it in Chicago. This has been WSFI Spotlight. For more information on oh. this or any other program, email info at WSFIRadio.com. Dot org.